Welcome back to Impact, the podcast made to ask the hard questions about crafting impactful careers. It is fantastic to have you joining us today, and it's fairly dreary here in Oxford, but it has not limited our enthusiasm for the podcast. I'm Katie Cowell, and I'm in the Environmental Change and Management Master's program at Oxford, and I'm kind of working to better understand how climate change works and learn about some available solutions. And I'm Brian O'Callaghan, an Aussie PhD student here at the University of Oxford, studying in the space of renewable energy, uh, economics and policy and how they all come together. Katie and I are stoked to be joined this morning by Jennifer Haverkamp, environmental lawyer, expert in climate change negotiations and current director of the Graham Sustainability Institute at the University of Michigan in the US. And before we begin our discussion today, we thought it might be a little bit helpful to provide further context to our guests because she really has been all over. So Jennifer earned a JD from Yale Law School. Prior to that, an MA in politics and philosophy from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and a BA from the College of Worcester uh, on whose board she is now a trustee. She then spent some time working with the World Wildlife Fund, the US Environmental Protection Agency and the Environmental Defense Fund. She was the U.S. State's Department's Ambassador and Special Representative for Environment and Water Resources. She directed Environmental Defense Fund's International Climate Program and served as an Assistant U.S. Trade Rep. Today, she is the Graham Family Director, as mentioned, and she's Professor of Practice at Michigan Law School and Professor of Practice at the Ford School of Public Policy. She also currently serves as co-chair of the University of Michigan's Commission on Carbon Neutrality. So, as I said... Jen's really been all over. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. It's a delight to be here with you. And uh, it's not that dreary to be back in Oxford. It's wonderful, actually. We're so glad to have you. Um, Picking up on sort of this environmental thread throughout your career, I'd love to unpack um, kind of how you made those decisions a little bit more. I mean, why environmental work in the first place? That's a good question. I would say that ever since childhood, I was very interested in nature and wildlife. grew up on a bluff overlooking the Ohio River and the woods between the bluff and the river were my, were my playground. Um, but also overshadowing that view was uh, one of the largest coal-fired power plants in mm-hmm. the Ohio River Valley. So kind of had both of those uh, the whole time in front of me. When I went to college, I majored in biology. When I was leaving Oxford, I actually on my way to Oxford, I thought that environmental policy might be the career I wanted to go into because it seemed to combine my love of science and nature with uh, my preference for engaging more directly with people than spending my time in a lab. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. When you're leaving Oxford, did you imagine your career would unfold the way it did? Does it seem really different looking back? There are some differences. I would say when I left Oxford, I was pretty much set on a desire to at least start in the environmental world. I would say what I didn't expect was for my career to shift from domestic U.S. work to international to the extent that it did. And also, I think when I first left Oxford, I thought my world would be mostly um, environmental organizations, more on the advocacy side of things. Um, I think another thing is like, you know, the Kigali Amendment, Montreal Protocol, these are really fantastic impacts on environmental policy. And there are these huge projects that probably took a lot of undertaking to bring a lot of different parties together. 
I mean, how do you feel about those in retrospect, like the impact of those? Um, and how did you approach those types of large undertakings, bringing so many different people to the table? Sure. So when I was at the State Department, uh, I had the privilege to lead the U.S. negotiating teams for two of the international climate agreements that were concluded in 2016. One was the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which was international agreement to phase down hydrofluorocarbons, which are an intensely potent greenhouse gas. Um, the uh, analysis of some is that that phase down could lead to avoiding up to half a degree of global warming this century. The other agreement is less well known uh, in the UN Civil Aviation Organization. We negotiated an agreement for requiring global civil aviation to start, uh, well, basically to cap their emissions at 2020 levels. And given how hard that is to do for airlines, it basically created a scheme of requiring them to purchase offsets until they figure out biofuels and other more ways to fly more efficiently, maybe electric airplanes. But those are the two agreements that I worked on. So both of those undertakings uh, were probably the uh, peak satisfaction moment of my career so far. I always want to say so far. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, the culmination in both of them. It was the culmination of years, and in some cases, almost decades of work to uh, reach agreement around those two topics. And coincidentally, they concluded a week apart. So October of 2016 was, was just an incredible moment um, for all of us who worked on them. But as far as your question of what does it take to get there, I think that, that any of these require an enormous number of people all doing their part, and especially in the realm of international negotiations, where it's not even just, you know, one country. It's so many different countries who have to have their representatives trying to work in the same direction. Um, as an individual, uh, I was fortunate to join these after a lot of really smart, dedicated people had spent years laying the groundwork. And so I, I played a role in their successful conclusion, but it would be uh, enormous hubris for me to claim that I was the deciding factor or even a major factor in them happening. Because especially in, in big efforts like that, uh, it just takes so many different people to, to bring it all together. Um, that said, I would say that, that part of what, what uh, enabled me to contribute to those was the history of international negotiations that I brought from my time at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And multilateral international negotiations are an unusual skill for people to have. Um, to build the coalitions, to um, find the common ground. It's quite different from a lot of negotiations in the international front that are bilateral, where it's often which country has more power over the other one, and so the other one is you know, going along sometimes because they have to and sometimes because they want to, whereas you never complete an international negotiation unless 
the vast majority of countries come to the place where they want an outcome. And they see it being in their national interest to achieve that. And so you really have to go through it as a good listener as well as a good advocate for your own position so that you find the common ground and craft the outcomes that work for both sides. So Jennifer, sitting across the table from you, it's quite clear that not only do you have a passion in environmentalism, but you talk about Corsia in the civil aviation space and hydrochlorocarbons with this big smile on your face as though, you know, this is where your heart has always been. Um, and so at least in my mind, it seems clear that you have your interests and your passions, which have beautifully mashed up. But for others, that's not always the case. You know, we have a lot of friends who see an existential threat in the climate don domain um, but and really want to have an impact there, but don't see that to be aligned with their core interests, which could be in a whole variety of other areas. Um, so how do you advise someone who wants to have impact in their passion area but doesn't see that aligned with their interests? Well, starting with the example of climate change, if that's the area where you're hoping to have impact, it's such a broad problem with so many dimensions, both on the how do you reduce emissions and how do you help the those on the receiving end adapt to and and deal with the impacts that it's should it's not going to be that hard to find some piece of the puzzle where you can make a difference even if you're in the performing arts you can use your passion and skills to help bring more attention to the issue so i i think that that's you shouldn't uh, again i think back what i was saying about international negotiations the same with climate change so many different ways that so many different people can contribute to the solutions that you probably should go into it without thinking, what is the really big impact I can have, but more, where can I do something that, that aligns with some of my skills and interests? I don't admit this very often, but back uh, before I started working at Environmental Defense Fund on climate change, I used to say, climate change is such an incredible problem, I'm glad other people are working on it because I didn't think it was my area of interest. Um, but I think when you, when you start working on something, if it's, if it's, with, if it's about a problem that you, you see as, as uh, important, you kind of get sucked into it and, and it becomes more and more interesting as you go. Um, so I think the, the danger when you're really passionate about something is to not bore people around the table who aren't in your world but while you're in that world, uh, I think that it, uh, it can be pretty quickly fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, so are you saying it's a false dichotomy then, the interest-passion playoff? I think a bit. Um, not for everyone. Um, and I don't think you are going to be happy if you go into something because you think you ought to be doing it, right, but don't have interest in it. Um, there are so many problems to be solved that uh, find find some that feel like it's a good alignment with your interests but don't at least don't at this beginning of your career feel like the decision is so incredibly weighty um, because you've got a lot of time to move around and uh, it's okay to have a few what feel like in retrospect false starts kind of and building on this climate change progress, maybe for this specific example, I mean, 
There's been some limited climate progress over the years. How do you maintain your motivation and interest when sometimes we have these narratives of the future that are so bleak? And I guess I sometimes worry entering into a career in climate, am I going to get burned out? How do, you, how do you keep up the excitement for such a daunting task? It's a very fair question. And how I answer that probably varies day to day. Um, at one level, I am optimistic because I don't see an alternative. Um, at another level, it is that I think a lot of the technological fixes are out there already. And so a lot of solving this problem is bringing people and political forces together to where they're ready to really seriously grapple with the question. And those of us who've worked in this for years, I think, have been waiting for the political moment when it flips. And it feels like the last year or two, we're starting to see that flip. Um, and I think part of it, unfortunately, is that the impacts of climate change are more and more among us today. It's becoming less and less of an abstract problem of the future. And so more and more people in countries like the United States, my own, where we've had uh, public concern far exceeding political will, um, at some moment those politicians are going to wake up and realize that they have to address the problem. So that's a reason to have the solutions waiting in the wings. The other thing I think is that we are already at a point where the impacts are happening and so we are not in a world of avoiding dangerous climate change, we're in a world of making it less bad. And that is still fully worth everyone putting effort into, to minimize the misery, minimize the adverse impacts, minimize the species extinction, as to the extent we can. Then just kind of one more example of why I'm hopeful is when you look, you see Again, this will be fairly U.S. focused, but you see, you see states, you see cities, you see companies, you see religious organizations stepping up and looking for ways that they contribute to the solution. And so there's a lot of activity uh, moving in the right direction. And even at the federal level, the two agreements that we've been talking about, Corsia and the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, those have pretty strong bipartisan support for going forward within the United States. And other countries are definitely participating. But, you know, the public attention is the current administration's opposition to the Paris Climate Agreement. And that's very real and very serious and very problematic. But these other two agreements um, are moving slowly but moving toward, uh, toward U.S. participation. So, Jen, it seems pretty clear that you've had times over the course of your career where um, everything has looked really good. You've had um, you know, these various agreements come through with full force and uh, there's a lot of excitement associated with that. You've also had periods where um, things haven't, the, the outcomes haven't necessarily been as clear and stark and they may have been you know, behind closed doors or just hitting brick walls. Um, and that, in my mind, brings back this idea of what is a personal philosophy of impact and how do you use you live your life um, in accordance with that philosophy? And it's a concept that we've talked about in the podcast a few times, but as a new concept, really what we're asking is, you know, what is your approach to how you want to have impact in the world and how you derive purpose for yourself? Those are great questions. And 
I probably have not reflected deeply about them from a personal perspective before you pose them. I would say that I feel through my whole career I have been driven by um, where can I feel like I'm contributing and making a difference. And so that has guided my career choices um, very much with an eye to how can I spend the time I've been given on this earth to leave it a little bit better. That sounds a little trite, but that is a real motivation. Um, I think that kind of going back to what I was saying about the role one that I've played in some of the large agreements I've been part of, uh, I have approached having an impact as in whatever position I found myself trying to do it to the best of my ability um, and and trust that it would contribute um, and lead to other opportunities, which it mostly has. Um, I would also say that um, one of the ways to build your ability to have impact over time is to uh, develop strong relationships with the people you work with so that you can continue to tap into those relationships, to look to them for advice, support, expanding the range of what you're trying to do so that there's, there's uh, I see impact very much through a human lens. Uh, some people will have their impact because they are brilliant inventors or have some other uh, skill set that I don't have. But even in those worlds, your ability to make a difference so often depends on who you can get to listen to you, who will follow your lead. And so the, the human relationships and the people skills are very much tools of the trade that I think people need to, to keep in mind and, and develop. I'd love to build on this idea of relationship building throughout your career, um, especially seeing as you've worked in so many different spheres in, in the public sector and not-for-profits and academia. How, how did you move between these sectors? And when you were making a significant shift, were you ever worried about maybe leaving expertise behind or leaving relationships behind? Or th were there ways that you could contribute, uh, continue to build your network, even if you were doing a big sectoral shift? A couple thoughts on that. One is that I've discovered over the course of my career that you never know when someone from a previous life is going to pop back up. Mm -hmm. And so I really haven't felt like I've left many relationships behind, networks behind, even when I've changed direction, because those people are also moving around and reappearing in, in unexpected places. And I would say my shifts across the different spheres have sometimes been accidental. Um, I won't say that other than in starting my career thinking I wanted to work on the environment, I don't think I was super intentional through many of the different phases of it. Uh, for example, uh, when I went to the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, which began my international environmental career, it was really pretty random. 
Um, <laughs> That's relieving to hear. <laughs> I was um, I was at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, and working for a political appointee whose job was going to end at the end of that president's uh, term. And I was wondering what I might do next. And a friend of mine was at USTR on loan from the Justice Department, and she had to go back. And so she said, would you like to go to USTR on loan from EPA? And I said, maybe. And she said, you get to work on this, that, and the other. And no joke, I said, what's the GATT? I didn't know what the general agreement on tariffs and trade was, but I went there and I ended up staying almost 10 years and pretty quickly becoming the head of the Office of Environment and Natural Resources at an incredibly interesting time when the trade world and the environment world first found each other and didn't like what they found. Um, but that was, that was a very accidental shift. But, you know, that laid the groundwork for working in the international space and a lot of those colleagues from the trade world from other countries showed up on the other side of the table when we all moved on to negotiating on climate. Um, so you never know. Have you ever, and this is maybe just a point of curiosity more than anything, have you had opportunities in the private sector come up that you've also considered over the course of your career? And how did you go about thinking mm -hmm, of those? Mm -hmm. I would say at the beginning of my career, I was much more focused on the nonprofit or governmental sector, and that's pretty much borne out. When I was in law school, I worked for law firms over the summer and saw some of that world. I would say I've been in the environmental space long enough to see a shift from where, in the early, early days of my career, the relationship between uh, companies and NGOs or companies and governments was more adversarial. and the the corporate sector has changed so much that there are plenty of opportunities now to work with companies that are trying to uh, really do the right thing, if you will, um, and are companies who are designing products or services that really contribute to environmental solutions. So at a couple times when I was making career changes, I explored that a little bit or thought about it, but but I guess gravitated back to what I what I knew better and uh, felt like I could probably be more effective in. Um, and I presume that you had colleagues at various points who did make those types of exits? Mm -hmm, definitely. I think another thing I'm curious about is sort of levers of influence in terms of what approaches you're using to address an environmental issue. And I'm wondering, you know, in the beginning of your career when you're starting and maybe working for, um, you know, federal government, were there any levers of influence that you believed in would work, and this was the approach, and you no longer believe in, but new approaches have maybe come up throughout your career that you're more interested in. I'm not sure that I would say there are any particular levers that I, based on experience, have abandoned, um, but it's true that over time, under different circumstances, some will work better than others. Uh, certainly, uh, there were times when impact litigation was the especially effective way to change U.S. environmental law. Then, you know, working more with the private sector became more and more of an opportunity of leverage. Um, there are times when, you know, when I was at Environmental Defense Fund in 2008, 2009, we made a real run at U.S. federal climate legislation that failed. <laughs> 
back to your question about, you know, have there been failures? Yes. Um, but, but to continue to have impact, what you need to do is be flexible enough to say, okay, that isn't working right now. What will work? You know, where can I pivot and make a difference instead? And that moved a lot of climate advocacy to the state level or the local level or the international level, kind of everywhere but the federal level for a certain period of time. Um, and I would say that, you know, right now it's fascinating to see how much of the progress on climate is actually being driven by big announcements from the financial sector. Um, BlackRock recently, uh, BP yesterday. I mean, you, you can paw through what they're actually saying to figure out uh, how, how ambitious they are in fact being. But the fact that there's a, a push now for companies to feel like they have to get in line and be part of, be part of the answer is, uh, is driving a lot of the conversation. So that's something that I don't think I expected 30 years ago. It's really exciting. Mm -hmm. It is. It really is. I think my final question on sort of navigating space. Um, so you're a part of one of the first mixed gender Rhodes Scholar classes. Um, and I'd love to hear more about your experiences, you know, either with that or working in other sort of historically male-dominated spaces. Um, lessons learned from maybe navigating a space where you are not going to be the majority person and... Um, how has that shifted how you, you know, enter a room today or work with different people um, and maybe bring in other people who they're entering a space where they're not going to be a majority? So the very first job I applied for as I was leaving Oxford, I did not get because I was a woman. Wow. Um, though it's a silly story compared to the, the discrimination you hear about from others, I, um, I really didn't know what to do next and went to the careers office here and uh, learned of and applied for a job as a tour guide on a uh, tourism boat for the Galapagos. <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> Let's do that, Katie. <laughs> Good plan for me and Brian next. <laughs> Where I could speak English and I could speak German and I could learn Spanish and I could be in the Galapagos. Um, but they came back to me after interviewing me and said, you know, you would be the first woman tour guide we would hire, and the tour guides have to sleep down in the hold with the male Ecuadorian crew, and we're not ready for that. So I went back to the U.S. instead. <laughs> well, but, but more seriously, I think that in the field I've chosen, the environmental field and international diplomacy, uh, there have been, uh, it's been less male dominated than a lot of other fields. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I confronted as much of those challenges, though I would also say that I also was the beneficiary of the women, you know, just a generation ahead of me or 10 or 20 years ahead of me who were really, you know, the ones who were opening those doors and breaking down barriers. I feel like I, uh, I still was very much in the thick of navigating how you balance the demanding career with the other aspects of your life and was 
was of a generation that thought, I can do it all. And uh, that's hard. You know, I think men and women both still need a lot more flexibility in the workplace to make uh, for rational lives, especially if they've got elder care or child care or other parts of their life they want to, to deal with. But the other way I talk about it sometimes is to again remember, you know, when you, when you start your career right after school, graduate school, um, remember that you've got 30, 40 years and you don't have to make it all one entire upward trajectory. You can have plateaus. And at some points in your life, there are going to be times when you strike a different balance than at others. Um, when I left USTR, I left to do some consulting and part-time teaching and mostly momming for four years. Uh, and then went into Environmental Defense Fund and picked things back up. And again, that if you've developed relationships along the way, you people don't forget you in a few years and you can pick things back up and, and keep going. We like to give a final opportunity to our interviewees on the podcast to reflect on their careers and all the way back to the beginning when you left graduate school. What type of advice would you give to, you know, young 20s, Jennifer, now given your newfound wealth of experience? I think it is to try as hard as it is in your early mid-20s, but try to take the long view. I think the 20s are really hard. You, are, you feel like you've, you're making such momentous decisions. And it's, it's one of the places, there are many, but it's one of the big ones where you have so many doors open in front of you and you have to pick which ones to go through and you know you're going to close some. And for people who have been um, successful so far in their, their lives, that can be a scary moment. And I think that what I would say is not only can you, can you make shifts along the way if you've decided you've gone down the wrong route, at some level you can't know at that moment which will turn out to be the right one for you. So the stakes aren't as high as they feel like at the moment. You will go down some route, you will make the most of it, and either be very successful or decide, I want to make a change and be able to do that. Fantastic. It feels like you're speaking directly to me right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jennifer, we want to give you a big thanks for coming down today and joining us for the podcast. It's been really, really, really huge honor. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's a delight for me to sit down and talk with you all. So good luck with your decisions going forward. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Uh, we hope that Jennifer's words were as meaningful, valuable for you as they were for us. I'm Brian O'Callaghan. My co-host is Katie Cowell, and this is Impact.